Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I am joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. There's millions, says Jeffrey, all under one roof. <laughs> and my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Eat a sandwich, skinny! And we are discussing our all-time top 100 video games. <laughs> Announcement! Announcement! Before we tell you all about what we've been playing this week and our 38th favourite video games, we just wanted to remind you that there are some ways in which you can enjoy more of what we're creating here at Our Three Cents. Firstly, we have a YouTube channel that is being populated with videos all the time. These include the mini-series Hard Drop that Chris has been making, covering some of the forgotten Tetris-alike games, including the most recent episode, which has just gone up, brilliantly linking Tetris to Animal Crossing via Pokemon and Yoshi. It's it's brilliant. (laughs) And there's also some streaming content on there as well, like the playthrough of Streets of Rage 4 that me and Chris did a couple of weeks back. So head on over to YouTube, search for Our Three Cents, and please do subscribe to our channel. We also have a Patreon page for people who would like to get even more content from us. If you head over to patreon.com forward slash Our Three Cents, you can pledge your support to us in exchange for some superb exclusive perks, such as Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes, like our DLC and boss battle specials, and there are deleted scenes and outtakes being put up all the time. You can even get some custom artwork, and there's the chance to record an episode with us yourselves. So if that tickles your fancy, do please head over and check that out. So, this week we have our number 38. But before we dive into that, it's time to return to the quiz where it is tighter than it has been in many months. A thrilling comeback from Mindy sees him just one point behind Chris. I'm so upset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to walk it. Here we go. In Crash Bandicoot, oh. there are two levels where the hero rides a special mount. What is it? Uh, Is it a warthog? Is it a rhino? The correct answer, according to this card, is a hog, which Google informs me is the same as a warthog, and the point goes to Chris. Oh, well done. (laughs) So if you're happy winning on a technicality, fine. But, uh, you know... It had hog in the name I gave. Mm. It did, but then so is hedgehog. And, you know, that's... No, but that's not the same, is it? I wouldn't have accepted that. No, I wouldn't have either. (laughs) So, there we go. Chris has started to accrue a lead again with two points. Still got time. Double figures. How am I going to keep up? (laughs) So, what have we been playing this week, Chris? Well, as as you mentioned in in our little introduction, I made an episode of Hard Drop recently. And as part of that, I played quite a lot of Tetris Attack, a game also known as Puzzle League more recently. And when the episode was finished, I just carried on playing it. <laughs> it was one of those ones I hadn't really intended to. Like, it's a game that I had Pokemon Puzzle League on the Game Boy Color at some stage game. when I was really young. And then I had the Puzzle League game on the DS at some stage as well. Again, going back years. But that was the last time I'd picked it up. And it was only really from from doing this episode and kind of getting into it a little bit more that suddenly I was like, I think I really like this game. <laughs> Having like not given it time for ages. And like, if, if you haven't played it before, it's in no way connected to Tetris. Like the episode I made was was pretty much saying that it's it's in name only. You have icons rising up the screen. You've got to try and match three in a row, either horizontally or vertically. And you do that by just switching two adjacent panels. And I'm, I'm good at Tetris. Like I've said this a few times. I, I think I'm pretty good at Tetris, but I'm pretty bad at Tetris Attack. But the, the more I've played it, 
I know it's a good puzzle game because I'm starting to get better. I'm seeing like I'm getting better at pattern recognition. The more rounds I play, like the the easier I'm able able to kind of spot good moves that will set up combos and cascades. So it's it's been really fun. And for anyone who pays for Nintendo Switch Online, the Japanese version of Tetris Attack, which is called Panel Dupon, has been added to the the SNES catalog at the moment. So you can give it a go. Hmm. Minty, what have you been playing this week? Chugging along with Labyrinth of Refrain. That's all fine. I'm in the next level now and I've just got to the top of the tower. Then I had to go and report back to the witch. And now I have to go climb the tower again. So I'll come back to that in a few weeks, I'm, I'm sure. But I, ha- I picked up a couple of games that I haven't uh, played for a while. Again, I've been enjoying trying to get better at Luminez. Oh, yes. Luminez? It's a good game. Yeah, I think it is Luminez. It's like luminescent. Yeah. Not, not Lumines. That's why I refer to pooing as. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's good. He's good. Just dropping some Lumines. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But today I played through Dead Cells again oh. with the Bad Seed DLC. Nice. I'm still terrible at it. I went through all the, the new levels that was that were in the DLC, but I still can't beat the Hand of the King on one boss cell. I can't do it. It's just beyond me. It is tough. It took me a very, very long time to do that, and I've, I've, now I've never been able to do it on two boss cells. It's incredibly hard. The, the DLC is nice. It's good. Like, I, I worry that the game is sort of heading the same way as Binding of Isaac in terms of just kind of being a bit bloated but I, I don't know whether or not that's just because I haven't been keeping up with it and sort of the vanilla Dead Cells is so ingrained in my memory from playing it so much that then anything new kind of just isn't sinking in yeah the nice thing about Dead Cells is you can choose what you unlock yeah and you can even choose what you want to appear in a run so if you do find it getting a bit bloated as you say just turn off some items yeah I think exactly. that's, that's that's an excellent way of doing it put the balance of the game in the hands of the player Player. Exactly. Yeah. Listen up, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody Ed. You shit. <laughs> As for me, I have been. Well, I mean, I've been playing a bit of Animal Crossing, which has been obviously lovely. Yeah. I have also carried on playing Lonely Mountains Downhill, which is just lovely. It's been a very nice game to sort of dip in and out of. And I have continued with my Super Mario Maker two creations. I have now finished the third world in my epic odyssey to create a full eight world game I'm very excited so i've just finished the super mario world theme world which is quite good and i've, I've just literally just about five minutes ago finished uh, the first level of the next world which is my new super mario brothers u themed world and uh, it's, it's just great it's really really great i'm having a really nice time it's nice to actually have the time to put into it and creative space in my head to think about what i want to do and just to play around with it and to tweak stuff and with every level i'm making i feel i'm getting better as a designer making the levels and and that's and that's really satisfying as well one of the things i did in the last world was i loaded up what was actually the very first level i created when i got super mario maker 2 and thought, oh, you know, I'll have a little look at that and see, you know, see, see if I can't, you know, maybe maybe use use that to sort of feature in the game. And and it's just, it was shit. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, it was it was not it was not fun. It was stupidly hard. It was like I'd made it purposefully just to annoy. I mean, you two. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, it wasn't good. You know, there's a way of doing hard levels, and it, and it's not that. It's not just putting seven hundred piranha plants on sort of rails to, and then you got to chance your way through it. It's like no. But what I did do is I then reworked that level, and because the, there were some bits I liked 
liked there were some bits I didn't like some design elements I really liked and so I tweaked that and, and worked it around and, and made it into something that, that I think is now a, you know a really good level so that's that was nice and I'm going to do the same with my masterpiece level Uncle Touchy's Puzzle Basement <laughs> that I made I'm going to rework to be the, the boss level of um, <laughs> of this current world that I'm making so I'm looking forward to uh, to getting back back in touch with Uncle Touchy um, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear oh dear without further ado shall we move on to the rankings yes, yes. i think that'd be yes. great thanks for asking yeah our 38th favorite video games of all time this week we are starting with monsieur egyptian boat <laughs> that's me isn't it chris dow <laughs> oh. very good very good i have spent a week worrying about how to talk about this game and that is not only because it comes in the wake of Panzer Dragoon Saga that I talked about last week, which is a legitimate all-timer, as I said, <laughs> but because it's it's so different to maybe every other game on our collective lists, certainly so far. Ooh. In the past, I've muddled my way through talking about walking simulators with Proteus and Firewatch. But even with those, like they're weird. It's a weird genre. But I was able to talk about the sense of place and atmosphere. And regardless of how anyone as an individual might feel about that genre, there's still something gamey about walking around. Even if it's not like particularly high octane or high risk, it's still something that people understand as being an interactive gamey thing. Yeah. Today's game on my list is a visual novel. Oh. And. It's the first visual novel I ever put proper time into after being badgered to try this one in particular by my friend Jenny. And at this point, when I picked it up, the sum total of my understanding of what the visual novel genre was, was just thinking it's uh, it's a book with pictures and you tap a button to turn the page. And and that was it. That's, that's all I understood of, of what the genre was. And you're about to tell us that it's not that, right? <laughs> I think so. Like in, in some cases... In some cases, that can be a pretty accurate description. Like some may add the odd choice to make it sort of choose-your-own-adventure style thing, which means it may have like a branching narrative and different endings. But some are literally just text with no player interaction outside of just setting the pace at which the text arrives. Today's game, which is, as as we know, my 38th favourite video game of all time, is called 999. Oh, yeah! Or, alternatively, its full title is Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors. It's not a straight kinetic novel. That is ones that are just like devoid of choice. But it's also not really a regular visual novel either because it's a hybrid of of narrative storyline and escape room puzzles. And it drew me in within like the first 10 minutes of playing originally and and didn't let up until I finished it maybe 20 odd hours later. Um, And at that point, I'd I'd rung every single ending and pathway and, and every bit of dialogue and text there was in the entire game. Now, the big issue with talking about a game in this genre, and this is why I found this really tough to write, is that if I detail the story in too much depth, it takes away the biggest reason you might play the game at all. Uh, yeah. So even like an RPG, like you can talk about an RPG and you can say, this is what happens. And the player picking it up can still be inspired to want to check it out because of its landscapes or its battle systems or collectibles or side quests. There's all this other stuff going on. So even if you know what the main story beats are, there's something to pick up and do. And a visual novel isn't really like this because once you've said, oh, it's about X and they do Y and they end up with Z, that's a huge part of the intrigue is just gone. So at its loosest, to try and make this like really, really stripped back to just give you a flavor of what the game is about, you play as a character called Junpei, who's like kind of an everyman character who wakes up on a ship after he finds out he's been drugged and kidnapped alongside eight other characters, which are the, the nine persons of the title. 
you get instructed really early on that you have nine hours, again, there's the title, to work with these characters to explore the ship, encountering nine doors. Hello, there's, there's the title again. <laughs> oh, I see. In an attempt to escape a grisly fate. And each character within the first sort of like 10, 15 minutes realizes they've been rigged up with a bracelet that carries a digit from one to nine and are informed that attempting to remove that bracelet will cause them to explode. Hate it when that happens. <laughs> it's one of the last things you want to happen when you're on a boat. So you have no idea how you got there. You've got a weird bracelet on. <laughs> yeah. Like it's it's an incredibly harrowing start to a game though. Like when you actually read it, it's not not done for jokes. It's just, it's a very straight, straight laced thing. It reminded me a bit actually of how Old Boy starts. Oh, it's actually quite similar. Yeah. Mm, oh yes, yes. It's, it's like it, it moves away from it being, it's not like an amnesiac storyline, but it's like the, the reason for being in a place is taken away from the central character so you're quite right actually but the numbers on these bracelets the the numbers one to nine are key to the entire setup the number nine is a central theme in what is called the the nonary game throughout the whole thing and you have like a disembodied voice who will speak to the cast over the ship speaker system throughout the story so things move along and and that is in essence the the setup for the game playing it the, the rough kind of gameplay loop tends to follow the format of having like a half hour chunk of story then a point and click style escape room puzzle then a bit more story, then a puzzle, then a story, puzzle, just back and forth like that. And the puzzles usually require you to hunt for clues or objects to then unlock an eventual door and escape. And actually thinking about it, 999 was my first exposure to the idea of escape rooms at all. Like I'd, I'd never played the 40 billion Flash games online that all seem <laughs> to revolve around getting out of a, of a location. Uh, and obviously physical escape rooms that are hugely popular now in, in real life just didn't exist in the same way then. But I really liked their implementation in this game because the puzzles always seem to be kind of pitched just right to make you ponder for a bit before having like the eureka moment of how you were going to use an item to interact with another or help you to uncover something that you might have previously missed. So it's, they're well-paced puzzles. They're not super difficult, but they're they're taxing and challenging enough to make you feel like you've earned the reward when you get through it. The writing in the game is is very, very good. And the puzzles, like I said, are good. But the subversion of, of kind of like what visual novels are by having these escape room segments and some other bits and pieces is what makes it kind of more interesting to me. It's, it's a game that I would recommend to anyone who is interested in that genre and doesn't know where to start because it does so many things slightly differently to what is the norm. Like... If you take a regular book, you you finish a book, you sit back, you close it up, and then you go, oh boy, that sure was a book. And (laughs) your book is done, and you're you're safe in the knowledge that you have read everything there was to read because you've gone from A to B, cover to cover. It's, It's like a linear piece of media. And games are not like this. Like, any game is not like that. And and the key draw, I guess, for a visual novel in, in a regular form is there are other approaches or three lines that you can take throughout the story. And it means that by the end of a visual novel like that, you, you've kind of had the ability to sculpt your own story, but you still know that there are other bits you haven't seen. And what 999 does slightly differently to a lot of visual novels is that it does offer that kind of branching narrative with story junctions that lead to different endings. But it also embraces this split narrative to offer like a wider story and resolution than, than other mediums could manage because it expects you to do more than just saying, oh, well, I got the band ending. That's that's the end of my play. It, it wants you to go back and do more because they start to layer into each other and, and the different endings you get then start to inform like the story in your own head in, in a really clever way. In the game, every ending is distinct and self-contained, but they are also part of like a wider narrative, like I said, that isn't really resolved until you've taken every pathway. And when I was playing this, like at the height of my kind of like mania to to get through this game, I I started my final playthrough when I was working in a residential care job. 
and I finished my evening shift at 10 p.m. I had a, an early shift the next morning and I was rotated to do like a sleep in at the residence. So what I would normally do is I'd bring like my DS or I'd bring my, my PSP and later my Vita, whatever I had, uh, and I'd play it just before I went to bed. So I, I turned on my DS that night, probably about 10.30. I thought, okay, my playthroughs up to this point, because you can skip previously seen dialogue when you go back to do another ending, is about two, three hours. So I can probably get through that before I go to bed. And yet by the time it got to half 12 or, or one o'clock, I was nowhere near done. Like I, I was on this final story path. Everything was coming together. And I was, I was so engrossed in the whole thing that I thought I, I can't stop at this point. <laughs> like I, I have to be, I have to be up for work at 6am, but I, I have to get through this. I'm so invested now that I know this is the last, last bit. And I played through until like 3.30, I think that night, because I, I just felt like powerless to stop. Like I, I was so connected to the characters I was reading about and these puzzles and everything that was coming together that I just felt like having that groggy, drowsy shift the next day would be worth it. <laughs> so what if the residents died? <laughs> Fuck them. That was my thinking at the time, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's just an alternate ending. Come yeah, on, it's exactly. a bad ending. Exactly. Sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just because the, the overall package of this game is just it's something else like it's it's a visual novel that doesn't feel like a visual novel and like i said it's it's the game i would recommend to anyone who hears about that genre and goes what well, it's just a book isn't it I'm not going to sit on a console and read a book because it, it really does show you that you can use text and you can use these kind of small choices to make you feel very very invested in something even when you're not particularly active in in like the game's world it's better written than a lot of contemporary fiction i've read it's better paced than a lot of thrillers i've seen like it has connections, I think, to like the the first Saw film. That idea again of having like the exploding bracelet and everything, and being captive and not knowing how you get out. But I think it runs better than that film does. Even like the original DS release, when it didn't have voice acting, which was was later kind of brought back for the the re releases of the game, it still plays really well. And and yet somehow when the when the voice work was brought in, it made it even better. Like it's it's just a brilliant brilliant package. The only thing I can say negatively really is that it's not as brilliant as um. Panstreaking Saga, but I can't do much about that. <laughs> so up until last week, uh, when I talked about that, this was genuinely the 38th best video game I've ever played. But really, it's the 39th. <laughs> yeah, these things need just a little push, maybe, to uh, to write themselves in the future. <laughs> but yeah, 999 or, or 9 hours, 9 persons, 9 doors. Great game. A very odd one. Uh, and one that I would imagine lots of people haven't played. So give it a go. Well, I did give it a go when you recommended it to me, when you first had it. Well, there you go. It was in the middle of a time when I was very, very busy. And I think I've spoken about it before, where I've said, oh, I can't really play that game because I... I'm, I'm not really in a position to play games that I have to listen to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Often I'm like that with the Switch, where like uh, if I get like a big RPG, but I'm in the middle of a bit of a busy period, I'll find like a couple of hours to put into it, like on the TV or something, so I know what the game sounds like, and then I, that can sort of accompany me in my head whilst I'm playing it, just handheld whilst <laughs> doing something else. It's, it's like when, when I'm binge watching like a TV series or something, I have to physically watch the first couple of episodes so that I know what the characters sound like, and then I can be, I can have it on in the background and follow it because I know what they sound like. If that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But I got, I remember getting 999 when I was in the middle of one of these sort of periods. I was like, I was really, really busy. And I, I sort of, weirdly, I, I basically had the DS by my bed and I was like, right, I'll, I'll put in like an hour, like when I get into bed. But I was just so knackered. Every time I started, I was just like, oh God, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. And so it never really got its hooks into me because I didn't, I didn't really sort of have the time and space to kind of give it that chance. And yeah. and I remember you sort of telling me, 
just how, how good it was and, and what a great experience. But um, yeah, unfortunately, I never never managed to do that. I, I, I think I've still got it somewhere. So I, I, I might see if I can dig it out and give it another go now that I've got, obviously, a bit more bit more time on my hands in lockdown. If you can access it, the Vita port is the one that has like the full voice acting and stuff. Oh, there we go. I'll do that. And it's it's a real treat. Like It's got a few quality of life things as well that do make it a better game. Minty, did you ever play it? Never played it, never heard of it. That's all I have to say on the matter. Well, today, this has been a learning experience for you. <laughs> yes. I think you'd really enjoy it, Minty, because you, you do like your escape room games. Yeah, yeah, mm. and I and I still know nothing about the narrative, so well, I, could, I, could, I mean, I could play it and I could enjoy it. In the meantime, what's your 38th favourite game? Oh, my 38th favourite video game. The Nintendo <laughs> GameCube was good, wasn't it? It was so good, Minty. It was a very, very good console. Plucky little purple box with its... Handle the most comfortable <laughs> controller I've ever held. Yeah. Against the Xbox and the PlayStation 2. It's quite an underwhelming console in terms of power and numbers and all that shit that doesn't really matter unless you know how to make the most of it. And this game shows us that Nintendo does. Ooh. After Chris's Panzer Dragoon saga last week, I'm thrilled to announce that on the show we are continuing the theme of games we don't understand why we place them so low on our lists. <laughs> it's one of the best games on the GameCube. It's one of the best of the genre. It's one of the best in the franchise. It's Paper Mario, The Thousand Year Door. Ooh. Oh, wow. I am surprised that this is this low on your list. It's me too, now. <laughs> I mean, it's Paper Mario, but it's better. Still got seven MacGuffins to collect, still got a team of partners to assemble, a whole world of interesting characters to meet, and tons of varied areas to explore. It's just excellent. It's an excellent, excellent game. Really lovely to look at, fantastic to play. There's just so much good stuff, it's hard to know where to begin. Let's, yeah, let's start off by saying that it's the last Paper Mario game to have chapters. That's a big thing. Lovely long <laughs> chapters that have a natural and satisfying conclusion that isn't hitting the star block on the right-hand side of the level. Take chapter four, for instance. You start off looking for the crystal star on Glitzville, and it's on the championship belt of the pro wrestler Rock Hawk, who is, as you may have inferred from his title, a bird. Ooh. Big muscly bird that you have to fight to get the belt. So naturally you fight your way up the ranks to get a belt and by extension the crystal star. But that's not all because also in that chapter there's the mysterious disappearance of the former champion Prince Mush, the general's seedy atmosphere of the back corridors behind the ring, a mysterious confidant whose text messages help you uncover the corruption of the guy who runs the glitz pit. Each chapter is a self-contained story arc, and it's just so much better than just reaching the end of a level by walking somewhere. I don't really want to give away what happens in the game, because if you haven't played it, you should. And I don't want anyone hearing me spoil things before a much-deserved remaster comes out. The variety of the levels is astonishing, second only to the consistent quality of each chapter. Nothing feels out of place or different for the sake of it, and the hub level opens up gradually as you gain new abilities and movement mechanics thanks to your different partners, tantalising you with what's to come later in the game. Ooh, big train. Ooh, looks fun. Oh, big space in the harbour. Bet a pirate ship would go there. <laughs> Ooh, this out-of-place looking character I met at the start of the game knows how to open up the door to the next area about halfway through the game. I just need to let him write his, my name on my arse. <laughs> it's also the first game to feature the Pit of a Hundred Trials. We love these big labyrinth type deals. A hundred floors, a hundred increasingly challenging battles, fortune, glory, kind of okay prize at the end of it. 
there's just something about those relentless battle towers that, that I love, especially in the Paper Mario games. This one's great, and the ones in Super Paper Mario are even better. It also holds the title for the best application of paper-like mechanics without being tiresome bullshit. <laughs> you receive dubious power-ups from four black chests throughout the game. Now, each one holds a chaotic entity captive, and as you free them, they inflict terrible curses on you. The ability to turn sideways and become completely flat for reaching areas blocked by a very thin walkway. The power to roll up into a paper tube to roll under fallen trees and the like. A boat. A paper aeroplane. The transformations have an explanation that's completely in keeping with the feel of the adventure. Uh, each time you find a chest after the first one, you think, okay, I'm getting a new movement mechanic, and there's also going to be some fantastic dialogue where the creature in the chest convinces Mario who isn't evil, like every one of the ones that you've already encountered in these circumstances, as well as the gusto with which they curse you and mock your newfound embarrassing physical capabilities. I love the last one you find because the party is just so done with their bullshit. They say, just just curse us and get it over with. They also allow him to do the whole, wee-hee-hee, fools. <laughs> now you turn sideways. Eat a sandwich, skinny. <laughs> Even after he's done it, he said, ah, oh, hey, by the way, thanks for letting me do my thing. That, that means a lot. I've been waiting for a long time to do that. <laughs> it's that kind of writing, the kind of integration that's been missing from the last couple of Paper Mario games. It plays with Mario's flatness instead of just being like, oh, everything is made out of cardboard now, and that's all the work we put into this game. We should have known that Sticker Star would have turned out like that, seeing as how all the papery afflictions in this game were curses. Interestingly, on that note, it's the last game in the Paper Mario series that was known by some variation of the name Mario Story, or had any reference to being an RPG in its title. Paper Mario was known as Super Mario RPG 2 in development, before being called Mario Story in Japan, and this one was originally called Mario Story 2. And then something weird happened with Super Paper Mario, but then the word story left the collective consciousness of Nintendo when they started churning out Papercraft Drek. <laughs> I can't wait for the Origami King. Is it going to be good, do you think, now that you've had time to absorb the trailer? Uh, I pre-ordered I pre it, so I, I'm... I am... Literally banking on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does look fantastic from, from what I've seen of the, the little trailer. Yeah. You know, I, I totally understand like your frustration with the direction that the games have sort of taken... Um, Paper Mario Thousand Year Door is the only Paper Mario game that I've played, I think. Mm. I remember I, I blasted through it in like a weekend when I, I rented it from Blockbuster, I think. And it was fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Like really, really great battle mechanics that I, I hadn't seen in another game because I hadn't really played... I haven't, I haven't played another one of the Mario RPG games at that point. Oh, I have played Mario RPG, the, uh, the, the original one, but obviously that's not Paper Mario. Oh, yes, yeah. Still good, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you think it's the best Paper Mario game? I think it is the best Paper Mario game, but it's not the last one I'm going to be talking about. Okay, okay. I've, I've seen quite a few people talk about Thousand Year Door as, as like ranking it one of the best RPGs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I have no frame of reference. Like, I've played the first hour of Paper Mario on the N64, and that's it. I've never played any of the other games. So lastly, we have my game. Go on, lay, lay it on us. So, last week, your entry, Chris, gave me a right old trip down memory lane with Panzer Dragoon Saga. It was, I mean, absolutely wonderful to hear you talk about it, especially as we both had such a similar experience with the game at a, a, obviously yeah. a similar point in our lives. You mentioned it this week, and you confessed last week that after replaying it earlier this year, you placed it far too low on your list and Definitely. I said that one of the things I took comfort in was the fact that I'd be able to do a similar thing to you and replay it before it appeared in my list so 
that's what I've dedicated the last week to because Panzer Dragoon Saga is my 38th favourite video game <laughs> no. of all time. Whoa. <laughs> hey, we're not doing the fancy life thing again, are we? Serendipity. Yes, yes. So we, within one number, we, we had the same ramming up relationship with this game and now it's fallen this yeah. close on the list. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, just like you mentioned last week, when I had the game as a kid, a lot of it went over my head. I was enjoying it mainly through watching my brother Alex play it. And I think I maybe got through the first two discs of the game, which Mm. I think is what you said, before then being a bit overwhelmed by it and putting it down. And like you, when I was putting together my list, I I sort of had to take a bit of a stab in the dark at where it should be, because obviously I held it in extremely high regard. It's a game that's very dear to my heart, but I didn't quite have the first-hand experience of it to you know make that judgment accurately and so i did exactly what you did which was like oh it's probably you know about about here which is almost exactly where you put it but after you spoke about it last week and, and talked about your you know revelation about the game following your full playthrough of it i you know i didn't want to miss my chance to do that and to properly experience it now unfortunately whilst i have my original Sega Saturn and my original copy of Panzer Dragoon Saga I don't have a TV with a SCAR input or an RGB input anymore it's really common isn't it loads of modern panels just have no connections anymore yeah I'm gonna have to do something about that before I get my memory card reader for my Saturn which is meant to be coming next month and then I can get it all all set up again yeah. but um I'll, yeah I'll, I'll cross that bridge another time but f- fortunately for me the sega saturn emulator on my nvidia shield runs panzer dragoon saga with a huge deal of stability and gave me i mean to be honest as good an experience as you know i could hope to get yeah outside of watching somebody else play through it on youtube which i i, I didn't want to do but that was you know i would have resorted to that if, if i had to but my oh flipping my <laughs> i also echo your sentiments from last week that this game has arrived at least 20 places <laughs> yeah. too low on my list absolutely it is an absolute masterpiece i mean it's it's quite incredible how much stuff was like familiar to me in the game having you know not played it in 22 years yeah. but also how much stuff i remembered but then hadn't really processed properly as a kid. Like I remember seeing like the like the political and religious sub themes and the ideas and notions of like destiny and divine purpose. I I remember these things and I remember like some specific turns of phrase. But you know now they were hitting me with with full resonance. Yeah. And obviously we weren't the target audience for the game when it first came out. We were too young, I think, to to digest it. My, I mean, my brother, who's you know he's got two years on me. He appreciated it on a you know much deeper level, but I I think he, you know, he would still be probably in awe of it today. Thinking sort of thinking back. In fact, I, I touched base with him about it during the week, and I mentioned I was I was playing through it, and he asked me, he said, you know, what's the, what's the singular reason for for why I love the game so much, and and I couldn't really give him a straight answer because there's so much about the game that is is so incredible you know it's so dense with so many like amazing groundbreaking things but i you know i first and foremost mentioned the deep and succulent law <laughs> something that you know chris touched on last week when he was talking about the game and, you know as you said in, in the first two Panzer dragoon games all of the law was just just window dressing you know it was just a, a lovely vinaigrette to the basic leafy greens of a rail shooter <laughs> <laughs> a Paul Newman's French dressing. <laughs> but in, in in this form, in an RPG, you know, they really had the scope to delve deep into the game's universe and history and, and flesh it out in a much more tangible way. And 
yeah, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, there's just there's so much to it. There's so much flavor text and and, and books to read and side quests and subplots and like there's information for for everything. Like you you're not left wanting if you want to find out more about something. It it is there. You can do it. Like I remember even like right at the start of the game in the valley. I remember like finding a, a crate or something, firing my laser at it, and it just saying an imperial piece of crap you know it didn't need to be there (laughs) but it was wonderful it was I love that I love that it's hilarious plus it was a little bit rude (laughs) and that gave us a giggle back then but I mean even playing through it today I'm I'm still gobsmacked at the level of artistry and design on display in the world building and you know I can't imagine how much more blown away I would have been had I you know appreciated it fully back in 1998 Mm. although you know having said that if I'd been a bit more tapped into Japanese pop culture back then, like, you know, like I am now, a bit bit more of a fan of anime and stuff. You know, a lot of elements would have been a bit more familiar, especially looking at, like, the early work of uh, Miyazaki and uh, Studio Ghibli. There's a lot of similarities there in its, like, steampunk world, that sort of lived-in sci-fi feel of, of, of Star Wars and the airships and the fantastical undertones, the sense of destiny in the protagonists. I mean, it just got me thinking, what I wouldn't give to see the story, like, developed as an anime series. I mean, oh boy, yeah. that would be... That would be, be such a great, such a great fit. <laughs> The other thing I mentioned to Alex that I loved so much was was the sense of scale. Yeah. And this game really relishes in making you feel small and alone. And and part of this is, is due to the fact that the environments are, are generally quite sparse, which is part and parcel of the Saturn's, you know, inability to conjure vast detailed 3D worlds. But the developers really lean into that. And it's it's great that you can see your character, Edge, riding on the back of your dragon and that like when you go to a campsite you can walk up to your dragon get a, a sense of, of his perspective but then when, you, when you're flying around on the dragon in, in one of the areas and you see something that then totally dwarfs even your dragon I often felt like my jaw dropping like even now with like the vague sort of blocky polygons I mean, they convey so much with it even something as like small as, as the little item beacons that are scattered around the world for you to break if you fly right up to one you realise just how huge they are. Yeah, they're, they're like big. 20 times the size of your dragon. It's, it's insane. Or like when you fly into an elevator in the tower and, and it sort of closes around you, you're tiny compared to your surroundings. I mean, like I said, it's it, it truly awe-inspiring. And, and the developers really obviously use the limitations of the system very, very smartly in order to establish the atmosphere and tone of the game with the limited resources they had. But they also go like above and beyond with it as well. There's lots of like little touches and, and flourishes and things that, that just didn't need to be in there, but they add like another level of, of complexity or, or texture to the world building. I mean, things like, you know, you're flying through the canyon and, and there's just some birds on a cliff. Or one of the bits that really stuck out to me is, is you go through this underwater passage when you're going to the Uru ruins and you can see like some sea creatures just swimming around you like outside of the tunnel. Like they didn't need to be there. Right. Like... But the, the, the vision that the developers had was, was extraordinary and just deep and alive. I mean, it's, it's pushing the Saturn so hard. And, you, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to do anymore. You know, just like, like take the day. You know, you've done enough. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, they just go, ah, oh, you know, maybe if we, if we just, just put a little something there or just like, oh, and it's, oh, yeah. And speaking of the Uru ruins, like, it's such a beautiful location. One of the things is that you can access the area in different times of the day. Like, when you return to it for the different story beats, it sort of goes from daytime to, to, to nighttime and, and, like, sunset looks beautiful. Like, really beautiful. 
And then you've got like the forest of Zoa that is like on fire as you're flying through it. And you've got like the smoke and the flames and you're struggling to see where you're going. So you can like you bring down the roots of these like giant monsters that are then poking above the canopy. And my goodness, the tower. The tower is like such a an amazing like location in a game. It's iconic, isn't it? It is. It really is iconic. It's just like a totem yeah. to the whole world. Just this... this totemic thing that yeah. stands out on the map from really early on it's extraordinary and like for for three quarters of the game you hear tales of it you know and it's this fabled place and you think oh it can't possibly be as epic as it sounds or as, as vast as it is in like the picture you're building in your head but fuck me it's got <laughs> about like 20 floors to it it's enormous one of the most like awe-inspiring parts though is is like when you go into like one of the central parts of the tower between floors and then all of a sudden instead of just flying essentially horizontally you can just look up and you fly vertically up through the tower like through the power relays and the security systems and i mean it's just i don't don't know i don't know how the saturn was able to do that it's incredible it feels amazing. What I find amazing about the visuals in that game as well is I, I made the connection to Final Fantasy last week. Yeah. And the, the majority of Final Fantasy games, once they moved to 3D on the PS1, still had pre-rendered backgrounds and then polygonal characters. Yeah. And Panzer Dragoon Saga is just a 3D world. Yeah. There's no there's no bullshitting. It is just they modelled and rendered everything you see on screen. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Team Andromeda, the team that developed it, obviously, I mean, they got the very, very best out of the machine. Quite rightly, Chris, last week you, you paid homage to the, the quality of like the FMV cutscenes as well, yeah. which are beautifully animated and voice acted with, you know, the localization being great as well. And, you know, one of the nice things about these like pre-rendered videos is that it does like plant that vision of the characters and the world in your mind so that when you're in the game itself and obviously you're surrounded by blockier polygon versions of this world and and the low draw distance your imagination kind of smooths that all out because you've got that reference point from the videos and i think that's you know that's, that's, that's a really nice touch but i mean you know so much of this design and this artistry and the story and the deep lore you know it it wouldn't really mean that much if the game played as clunkily as other 3d games of the time but it plays beautifully you know even by today's standards it it totally holds up like the flying alone feels incredible it's beautifully smooth almost poetic Mm. (laughs) the fact that they put like a little function in so that if you, you tap the right shoulder button you do a barrel roll and again it had no functional purpose at all but I would just find myself doing these little flourishes when when, when it felt right and like yeah. I always loved it like if I was like exiting a cave or something and you, and you, you barrel roll into the, the, the light as you sort of dissolve into the next area it was just it's just really epic I loved it <laughs> you also mentioned about the battle system last week and it's, it's another element that, that holds up brilliantly it's I mean it's really inventive I've, I've never seen anything quite like it to be honest like before or or since but it's also like really intuitive in the in the way that it works. The fact that you've got like your two main attacks with like your gun and your homing lasers, they're like mapped to the A and B buttons, means that you can you can fight through battles really fluidly, which was quite innovative for like an RPG battle system, which is obviously quite usually quite menu based. Yeah. But you know, the way it combined it, you've got like the strategy of a turn based RPG with the immediacy of an action game, and it, it works together brilliantly. But I mean nothing is ever quite satisfying as circling an enemy and finally finding its weak spot and then like you pop like your sniper or assassin attachment on your gun fire a big fat bullet right into its squishy soft spot (laughs) oh you are you are dead oh oh it's great 
and it's it's just such a cinematic game. Like aside from the cutscenes, the the other story beats in the game are, are, are really thrilling. Like there's a moment when you lose your dragon and you're separated from him, and you're going through the underground ruins on this like little speeder transporter. And there's a bit when you're getting towards the end of the area, and like the floor gives way, and you're you're plummeting down to your doom. And then all of a sudden, like your dragon reappears in like this burst of light, and it was genuinely like fist pumping moment. <laughs> it was, oh, it's just really triumphant. <laughs> and I mean, the way the story flips and flops with who's on whose side, and like the grey areas of morality that are clouding all of these decisions. And I'm not going to spoil the ending of the game but it was something that I either didn't remember or just hadn't actually appreciated properly but the way it ends is incredibly profound with like a surprisingly meta sort of reveal and as I finished it last night I got like a shiver right up my spine and I was like tingling it was just amazing just such an amazing experience to to, to finish it with that just oh, yeah <laughs> mind-blowing ending you know I mean Chris you said like you're not a big fan of JRPGs. You often find them quite overwhelming. And I think it's it's incredibly palatable as an RPG. Yeah, definitely. Because it's, it's quite linear compared to yeah. a lot of RPGs, certainly a lot of modern RPGs. And obviously part of that is, is because of the nature of it being spread across four discs. So some areas have to be one and done. Otherwise, you have to keep putting in an old disc, which is actually what you had to do with Riven, the sequel to Mist, the <laughs> four-disc game that I spoke about last week. <laughs> the way they set up that game was that like each of the, each of the islands, there's like... I think that there's five islands in the game and so and there was like an island on each disc and like two on on one of them. So if you wanted to go between islands you had to keep swapping the discs and and, and which which was annoying. And obviously Panzer Dragoon doesn't do that, but it means that you do have this sort of momentum that you are going through these areas and finishing them and moving on to the next. But it's really nice that like some of the areas you, you can return to, like on all of the discs, but they'll have like different things in them and there'll be like some little little secrets or something and and it almost felt like, I don't know, there's something very exciting about it being like, oh, maybe, you know, I shouldn't go back there because, you know, that's that's like a disc one area. <laughs> it's sort of feel like you're sneaking into school at a weekend or something. <laughs> but it's, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's great. And there there are some lovely little secrets and hidden things that you can find if you do go back there. And to be honest, like the splits in the discs work really really well like you mentioned last week chris that the first disc came as a as, as a like a demo disc on the front of sega saturn magazine yeah but each of the discs ends on like a fantastic cliffhanger on like a brilliant story beat that i think actually the game would have worked really really well if it had been released like episodically like it that could have worked like yeah. every time i get to the end of a disc i'm like oh you know i just want to get in you know load up the next disc and, and carry on but i mean like aside from these epic story beats probably the most cinematic thing in the game are the boss battles I mean, they're amazing, and I've no idea why I didn't remember them better when we did our boss battle special for the Patreon exclusive episode. That's true, yeah. Because every single boss battle in this game are absolute bangers. You've got these like hulking, hideous, like almost Lovecraftian monstrosities, and then you've got like the human manned like Imperial warships, and there's like the other dragons that you're fighting. And I mean, they constantly left me absolutely thrilled. It was just, yeah, just great fun. Just really, really great fun. Obviously, no entry is complete with talking about the music. Chris, you had mentioned how incredible it is yeah, last week, and yeah, it really, really is. It does so much in helping build the atmosphere that they're going for, and 
you've got like the, the the sparse like whole tone scale music in like uru and you've got then the oppressive drones in the tower and my brother said to me he said the real enemy of the tower is the atmosphere and the music and, and he's right you know like when i was beating the tower it was like the night before last and then I sort of I was like, right, I'm going to put it down before I, you know, um, sort of go to bed, call it a night. And I didn't get to sleep then until about two in the morning. Like, I was so, like, consumed by it. I felt, like, really worked up by, like, being in that environment. I mean, to be honest, I could, I could keep talking about this game for a long time. I mean, I won't, but I will say that, <laughs> like Chris, I am upset that it has ranked so low on my list when it is really deserving of a much, much higher place. But um, yeah, I hope that doesn't diminish the game. You know, I've obviously tried to depict and sell here and how Chris was bigging up the game last week as well. And, you know, I would encourage anyone who loves video games to try and find a way of playing through this. It is such a landmark in, in, in video game history. And I will continue to my dying day to wish for a remake of the game. You know, I know the source code has been lost, so a remaster is out of the question. But if I won the lottery, I would seriously consider funding just a full, from the ground, remake of the game. In my imagination, veritably salivates how the game could be expanded (laughs) and developed with, like, today's tech. But as I said, the original holds up incredibly. It does. And, yeah, it is, is, I think, what I genuinely consider to be a, a perfect game. Absolute stunner. (laughs) <laughs> and, and within a week of each other, I, I still find that just absolutely mental. <laughs> I know, it's absurd. It's absurd. We're just going to have to get you to play it, Minty. Yeah, I, I, do you know what? I, I am thinking about trying to get a hold of it via emulation. Yeah. Do it. If, if you've got any means of, of playing it, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. Ah, maybe I will. Maybe I will. We'll have to do some research for you, Minty, and, and find out what works. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited. I am excited for you to experience it. Oh, so there we have it. Another three games. Firstly, we had nine hours, nine persons, nine doors, and then we had Paper Mario, Titty Whitey. <laughs> Before finally, embarrassingly again, Panzer Dragoon Saga. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast, like it, subscribe to it, review it, leave us reviews. We'd, we'd love to hear what you think. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash our three cents chat to us about these games that we've been chatting about tell us what you've been playing and feel free to ask questions that you might like us to answer in a future episode or you can reach out to us individually you can find me on twitter at jonathan dunn you can find me at chaz underscore hodges and i'm clement underscore boo in the meantime until the next episode please do check out our youtube channel and do check out our patreon page as well but until next week we shall bid you adieu Adieu. goodbye goodbye Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20-minute rock epics about war-ready armadillos that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about the most pretentious music of all, progressive rock, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Video Death Loop is a podcast where we watch a short video clip on loop until we just can't take it anymore. Along the way, we'll try our best to make each other laugh and to hold out longer than the other guy. You can jump in on any episode, no need to worry about continuity. Check out Video Death Loop on the Greenlit Podcast Network with new episodes every Friday.